I was wondering why I was invited to this conference, and um, my reasoning is like this. Since Lutheran theology is to a large extent responsible for the wave of canonicist uh, theologies, they asked a Lutheran. But they had the idea, well, if you're responsible for it, come and face the music. <laughs> I will try to do that. Um, you will see that um, I have tried to put my thoughts into a number of remarks, sometimes theses, sometimes less than theses, and I will go through them together with you. So the first section is on the strange persistence of canoticism disputed questions. There is hardly a passage in the Bible that has attracted so much theological attention over the centuries than a few verses from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who, being in the form or fair of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, a kenosin, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to death on the cross. The verb ekenosin, emptied himself, gave the name to the theological conundrum that has been associated with this passage at least since the 16th century. It has been claimed that theological reflection on the self-emptying of Christ or God, I quote, has become a vibrant and indeed dominant strain in modern theology. That's a quotation from my St. Andrew's colleague, David Brown, the professor emeritus there from his book, Divine Humanity. The focus on kenosis as constitutive for what we have to say about Christ and about God transcends denominational and confessional boundaries and presents itself as a truly ecumenical phenomenon. That is something to be noted, that kenoticism is no longer a kind of Protestant domain as it was in the 19th century and later became, from a Lutheran interest, one that was largely shared by Anglican theology in the 19th and then the early 20th uh, theology. But it is now to be found in every denominational family, especially also in um, um, Eastern Orthodoxy, where, for example, Bulgakov's great work, The Lamb of God, is a kind of very uh, intense canoticist uh, theology, and you find similar ten tendencies in Solovyev, Badyayev, uh, in quite a number of important authors of that tremendous revival of orthodox thought at the um, first um, half of the 20th century, focus on Saint-Serge in Paris. In order to access this phenomenon, to grasp its contours, to formulate the questions kenotic theologies try to respond to, and to focus the questions kenotic theologies raise, it might be useful to distinguish three distinct phases of the debate on kenosis. After that, we can hopefully offer a suggestion of how the question of the extension, what it refers to, 
and the intention what it means of kenosis can be more concisely phrased. One of the things that I uh, realized when engaging again with kenotic theologies was that uh, the extension is by no means clear. What does it really refer to? Is it the kenosis of the Son of God in becoming a incarnate? Is it, is it the life of the incarnate God? Or is it something that occurs within the inner Trinitarian life of God? And with regard to fixing the extension, what does it refer to? We have to reflect on what is the meaning of emptying oneself. Is it giving up certain divine attributes? Is it a form of emptying which is identical with the incarnation? Or does it include, for example, the suspension of the exercise of divine attributes? All these possibilities are part of the discussion. And the more we can sort them out, the extension and the intention, the clearer, I think, our theological judgment can be. <coughs> Then it makes sense to turn to Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther's understanding of the passage in Paul and to the question how it relates to ethical, Christological, and wider theological Trinitarian concerns. Selecting these two theologians hardly needs justification. However, with regard to the question of kenosis, referring to them proposes to be particularly illuminating. Thomas is often referred to as a resource for criticizing certain canoticist tendencies. And Martin Luther is praised or blamed as one of the fathers of canotic thought. Whether this assessment will finally stand up will be one of the questions that we will have to pursue. Now to the three, three and a half phases of canoticist thought. We can distinguish at least three phases of the discussion of kenosis in the history of Western theology. The first is the debate between Lutheran theologians of the universities of Gießen and of Tübingen at the beginning of the 17th century. For many theologians of the patristic era, like Athanasians, Gregory of Nyssa, Cyril of Alexandria, many others, um, the term kenosis ex inanitio, mentioned in Philippians 2.7, referred to the incarnation as the assumption of human nature by the Logos and described the mode in which the Logos reigned every occurrence everywhere became present in the human Jesus. There was no indication of any surrender or cessation of divine attributes in the incarnation in the patristic theologians. Since from an Athanasian perspective, the assumption of human nature is the foundation of every soteriological effect of the coming of Christ, such a consideration did not and could not occur. The debate which developed between the Lutheran theologians of the 17th century moved the focus from the event of the incarnation to the life of the incarnate Lord. They presuppose the communication of attributes, communicatio idiomatum, on the basis of which in the unity of the person of the incarnate Lord, his human nature participates in the divine attributes. It's very important to emphasize time and again, this 
can only apply to in the unity of the person of the incarnate Lord. Uh, there is no way of taking that particular emphasis um, away, otherwise one gets into rather serious theological difficulties, which probably would end with the philosophy of Feuerbach. If Jesus participates in the attributes of the divine nature, how can his real humanity be maintained? That is the question. The Tübingen party maintained that Jesus possessed from his birth the attributes of the divine nature also in his human nature because of the unity of the person of Jesus Christ. And that he had also used them, but not publicly. In his earthly life, the divine attributes remained sometimes hidden. Krypsis is the Greek word which they used in order to describe that. It's a cryptic interpretation of the Achenosan passage in Paul. With this position, they could defend the Lutheran doctrine of the ubiquity of the human nature of Jesus in personal union with the divine nature after the exaltation. In contrast to this view, the theologians from Gießen followed Martin Chemnitz's interpretation of the ubiquity of the human nature of Christ as a form of presence that occurs in all places the exalted son wills it. This particular form of teaching is known as multi-volley presence. So it can be in many different places when the divine son wills it. It's not an automatic implication of the exalted status of the divine son. And that they interpreted as kenosis. They assumed a real cessation of the use of the exercise of divine attributes during the life of the incarnate Lord. While the Tübingen position could be seen as jeopardizing the full humanity of Christ, you will remember that um, um, Yves Congar famously criticized Martin Luther's theology for being a monophysite uh, Christology because the humanity of Christ didn't have full weight in his uh, Christology. That is also something that the Gießen theologians feared the Tübingen theologians would um, be in danger of. And so they could be seen as implicitly denying the full personal un union of the nature. Um, well, uh, and in contrast to that, the Gießen position could be accused of implicitly denying the full personal union of the human and divine nature of Christ if the Logos reigned the universe apart from his union with the human Jesus during the incarnation. That is precisely the argument which the Tübingen party presented to the Gießen party by saying, if you say that there is some kind of cessation of the use of the divine attributes, do you not lead in the end to a Nestorian position? Where during the time where you have the kenosis of the divine attributes during the incarnate life, since the Logos still maintains reigning everything in the universe, you will have to suppose that there are two supposits of the divine and the human nature, one in the canotic state and one which is not affected by the canotic state. We note that at this first stage of canotic theologizing, the kenosis or crypsis refers to the life of the incarnate 
on earth and describes the mode of his actions and passions during the incarnation. So the real debate is always a debate about the interpretation of scripture. How should we interpret biblical narratives where Jesus appears weak, sleeps, um, seems to participate fully in human life? Is that a hiddenness of his divine attributes in the unity of the person? Or is it that his divine attributes are sort of suspended while he sleeps and maybe um, are activated again when he performs a miracle? So there is an interest in that of maintaining the continuity of the person, but at the same time of remaining true to the biblical record. Now the second phase. For the canonicists of the 19th century, it is not the incarnate Lord, but the creator Logos who empties himself of certain divine attributes in becoming incarnate. The reference of canonic language has changed. In its dominant form, in the canonic Christology of Gottfried Thomasius, the Logos divests himself of the relative attributes of God which characterize God's relationship to the world like omnipresence, omnipotence, and omniscience, omniscience, but retains the absolute attributes of God, God's holiness, truth, and love. The intention of this move is clear. The kenosis of the Logos in the incarnation is understood as a self-restriction on the part of the Logos, so that the Logos can lead the life that is appropriate to the human nature he assumed in the incarnation. This form of kenotic Christology was intended to make the classical Chalcedonian Christology compatible with the picture of the historical Jesus as it was presented by the early representatives of historical critical exegesis or higher criticism as that was called in the English speaking world. So the move towards the canonic theory was a move to integrate and somehow theologically appropriate the findings of historical critical research. If Jesus divests, is divested of the relative divine attributes, the attributes of divinity in relation to the world, then he could be seen as the person that the historical critical exegetes describe, who doesn't really differ so much from any other human person as we know them. So it is a move of adapting to a new situation while at the same time trying to hold fast to Chalcedonian Christology. That is what characterizes Kenotic Christology during that particular stage. To be able to mediate, to reconcile two worlds of theological reflection the one of historical critical exegesis, and at the same time, the classical model of Chalcedonian um, <clears throat> Christology. However, is that really possible? Would the divine nature of Christ not be characterized exactly by those relative attributes which the canonicist said he surrenders in the incarnation? Is it possible to maintain the full divinity of Christ while saying, well, he's not omnipotent, he's not um, omniscient, and certainly not omnipresent during that time? 
is this distinction right between the absolute attributes which the Godhead um, possesses without considering the relation to the world and those attributes which relate to um, the world and to creation. We can see already that in this incipient form as introduced by Tomasius, canonic Christology in the 19th century is a very unstable kind of theological construct. And the history of this form of canonic theology led both to a radicalization of the canonic motive in the uh, Christology of Guess, for example, who postulated the transformation of the Logos into a human being, and to various attempts to prevent such a radical interpretation that would lead to an open contradiction to classical theology, Christology. In the course of this debate, the contradiction of canonic Christologies with classical theology was picked up. Isaac August Dorner, for example, pointed to the conflict with divine immutability. If there is this self-emptying of the relative divine attributes, how do we square that with a notion of a metaphysical divine immutability? One of the possible answers to that would be to say, well, the immutability would have to be understood as the immutability of God's love, as the immutability of God's holiness, of the absolute attributes. But this is very difficult to explain since the change seems to consist in Christ and not in the one Christ relates to. And therefore, there is a real problem here. <coughs> a problem that will continue to haunt us because how do we understand the divine attributes? How do we understand the classical divine names? Even in contemporary theology, there seems to be a tendency to regard them as characteristic of the divine essence apart from the communion of the Trinitarian persons. So that the image that is being discussed over and over again is whether it is possible that three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, can instantiate the divine essence. This is a form of raising the questions which I think is highly problematic, as if there could be something like the divine essence apart from the Trinitarian possessions in the Holy Trinity. Is it not that in this way there is the divine essence quasi lurking like a fourth person behind the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? The only way to deal with that particular danger is to say quite clearly that apart from the processions, relations, and all that follows of the Trinity, we don't have a divine essence. Because the divine essence is exactly what the Father communicates to the Son, and is exactly what characterizes the Spirit as the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Apart from these possessions, no divine essence. If one takes this thought, however, seriously, the philosophical construct of classical theism crumbles because this kind of notion of classical theism normally can do without the Trinity and adapts the Trinity to the philosophical theism that is there. If we maintain that the essence of God is only real in the Trinity, 
and only real in the processions between the divine persons and the relations that are implied in these processions, then the form of the question becomes something quite different. Almost all elements of the third phase of the debate in the 20th century were anticipated in speculative form in the proposals of the 19th century, mainly through the mediation of the Danish bishop, Hans Lassen Martensen. Normally, he's only famous um, because he was attacked by Kierkegaard in quite a vicious manner, but he was a very representative um, churchman at the time. Kenoticism spread to the British Isles, achieving a flowering first in Scotland with Alexander Bruce, Andrew Fairbairn, Alfred Ernest Garvey, and Hugh Ross Mackintosh, and then in England with Charles Gore and Frank Weston, both Anglican bishops. A persistent feature of the discussion of this second phase is the influence of the philosophy of German idealism, notably Hegel and Schelling, and its criticism in Kierkegaard on Kenotic theologies as they were also developed within Eastern Orthodox theology. So whenever one talks about the second phase and also the third phase of Kenotic theology, one has to come to some sort of opinion on the influence of German idealism. Because one can see that in the philosophy of Hegel and in the philosophy of Schelling, there clearly is an element of kenosis there. But this element of kenosis is part of makes the spirit the spirit, what creates the divine essence as a being that is in becoming. And so it is quite different from the classical understanding of God's essence and the three Trinitarian persons. Is it that the element of becoming is imported into the being of God through the reception of divine, uh, of, of uh, the um, German idealism? It is very interesting that um, the philosophy of German idealism has a certain ambivalence. For theology, especially Protestant theology, it is also the rediscovery of the significance of the doctrine of the Trinity, which had sort of got lost during the Enlightenment. And it's the philosophers who put the doctrine of the Trinity again on the agenda, but as a way of understanding the process of the world. And there is the difficulty um, that is there. Perhaps the most decisive influence the um, philosophy of German idealism had on the Russian theologians and thinkers, on, on Bulgakov, uh, Solovyov, and Berdyaev, where one can show that it is their reception, especially of the philosophy of Schelling, that leads them to their theological positions. This is also interesting because during the 19th century, Russian theology was almost completely given over to a very insipid form of Enlightenment theology, which is one of the reasons why doing serious theology moved to the writers and the novelists. And Bulgakov and Solovyov and so on, they're the ones who reclaim theology for philosophy and do so with the help of German idealism. And in this way, criticize the not being very orthodox a character of orthodox theology in the seminaries in Russia in the 19th century. 
So this is a very interesting kind of intellectual interplay that here happens because the influence of the philosophers makes the theologians think again of theological themes. And then <clears throat> there is the third phase of the development of canotic thought, um, which moves the focus of the discussion explicitly from Christology to the doctrine of God. If the self-emptying of the Logos is the characteristic feature of the incarnation and the actions and passions of the incarnate Lord, does that involve a canotic element in the eternal trinity in the humility of the eternal Son of God, or even in a self-emptying of God the Father? Should the dynamic within the immanent trinity be seen as the condition for the possibility of a canotic incarnation? It is here that a reinterpretation or a revision of the classical doctrine of the divine attributes is called for and that the framework of substance metaphysics is questioned explicitly by some with regard to its ability to do justice to the biblical witness. Here one would, of course, um, have to mention the name of my Tübingen colleagues, Jürgen Moltmann, Eberhard Jüngel, and also in the application of Karl Rahner's axiom that the economic trinity is the imminent trinity and vice versa, the American theologian Robert Jensen. What we see here is that there is a tremendous pressure to revise the traditional attributes of the essence of God and to do so for very good theological reasons and not for reasons of adapting them to some kind of zeitgeist or philosophical, philosophical mood of the day. A variation of this third phase is the debate in Roman Catholic theology between the followers of Hans Urs von Balthasar and Thomist theologians, which has been compared to the de auxiliis controversy between Jesuits and Dominicans from 1581 to 1607. In the polemics of this debate, the Jesuits were often accused by the Dominicans as being at least crypto-Lutherans, not quite so canonic Lutherans. Um, I wasn't really aware that um, this uh, debate is alive and well in the Angelicum uh, until this morning at breakfast we had the following scene. The room was suddenly silent. Now, my grandmother would have said um, that an angel passed by. <laughs> However, uh, what was said by Father Glenn was, well, a Jesuit must have gone to heaven. <laughs> that made me aware that this kind of debate obviously still plays um, a, a very important role. Behind it, of course, is a very serious theological problem. And the problem is this. How much can we reflect from the divine economy into the imminent trinity without destroying the very core of the Trinitarian relations by importing elements that make sense in the context of Christology back into the eternal being of God? 
it's not only that the eternal being of God becomes rather dramatic on such an interpretation, but it might also become inconsistent. And that is something that is seriously to be feared. Because how can you place your faith in a being that has internal inconsistencies? So there is a, a strong religious background to this debate between two orders that, at least from my external perspective, still seems to be going on. Now let us turn <coughs> to Thomas Aquinas, The Self-Emptying of Christ and its Trinitarian Foundations. You can already see from that subtitle that I rely entirely on Gilles Emery's article in um, Nova et Vetera and his interpretation of Thomas Aquinas's doctrine of the Trinity. I would, however, emphasize some aspects in a slightly different way, and it would be very interesting to see whether he can agree with that as a possible reading of Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas' understanding of kenosis is strictly focused on the interpretation of Philippians 2, 5 to 11, combining the ethical exaltation with a Christological interpretation which relates the humility of Christ to his exaltation. This is an important point. I think it belongs, so to say, to the particular character of the theology of Reformation to keep one's theology close to the relevant passages of scripture and not to abstract general principles from them. So when we talk about kenosis, we must be able to make the link to that passage as a matter of theological craftsmanship and of theological virtue. <clears throat> With regard to the meaning of emptied himself, Thomas Aquinas maintains that the word did not surrender its divinity, but assumed a human nature. And in this he's entirely consistent with the patristic theology. Dicit ergo exinanivit quia humanum naturam assumpsit. It is said that he emptied himself because he assumed a human nature. Kedosis is assumption of a human nature. Human nature is, for Thomas Aquinas, as we've heard, not a developed personality, but nature in a state of potency to be filled by the identity of the Son of God. Accepit ergo naturam in persona sua, ut esset idem in persona filius Dei et filius hominis. The identity that is maintained here, which is a continuous identity throughout the incarnation, including the kenosis, is based on the fact that there is no new identity element that is constituted from the human nature. It is entirely constituted in the relationship um, of the divine nature to the person of the Son. That is the continuous identity. The assumption of human nature in this state of potency does not place restrictions on the person of the Son of God in the incarnation. The Logos does not empty himself, but assumes a quasi-empty human nature. Father Gilles Emery has explained that um, just a moment ago uh, by saying he empties himself by assuming an empty nature. And therefore, the emptying is not to be seen 
as an active process of surrender of anything, but as the act of assuming human nature, which in this state is to be seen um, as characterized by the potency to be filled with characteristic through the person of the sun. <coughs> the Lagos, Logos does not empty himself, but assumes a quasi-empty human nature. The self-emptying must more precisely be understood as a filling of human nature in the state of potency. Fourth, the assumption of human nature is possible because the person of the word includes the infinity of the divine nature. I found that the most intriguing element of Gilles Emery's interpretation here, because it is the principle of divine simplicity that implies that the divine nature is not subject to any genus. Well, that's the normal stuff. But is the principle of all genera beyond every genus. That's what we always learn. This, however, implies for Thomas, Thomas in the interpretation of Gilles Emery, that the divine essence contains in itself all the perfections of the creatures. He plains, explains that in the following way. The reference to the sons ex inanitio makes it quite clear because of the infinity of his divine nature, which includes every finite nature, the person of the son can assume a smaller nature in the unity of his own person. And that, of course, um, resonates very strongly with the assumption of the smaller as one of the sociological implications of the Pauline passage that we found here. What I find so important here is that it is an interpretation of simplicity which does not simply contrast simplicity with multi, um, multiplicity, but says the divine simplicity must in its supereminent perfection be seen as the source of created simplicity and created multiplicity. It goes beyond that. And that is something that applies, I think, to all attributes of God. So when we talk about um, God being the Lord over life and death, which we do at every funeral, we must mean something that says that the life of God is beyond the alternatives in which our finite life exists. Created life is limited by death. God's life is not limited by death, but is beyond the alternative of life and death, which characterizes um, created life. So that the creative life of God is something that, in its supereminent way, is beyond the alternative that characterizes <coughs> a created life. If one talks about the death of God, one can only do so with reference to created life. One can never do so with regard to the way in which God transcends the alternative between life and death that is characteristic for our existence. For Thomas, the assumption of human nature does not in any sense diminish the divine nature of the person of the Son, but includes the assumption of our smaller human nature. 
Therefore, the assumption of human nature does not in any sense involve the cessation or restriction of any divine attribute. The continuity of the person of the Son is rooted in the continuity of the divine nature which the Son possesses before, during, and after the incarnation in virtue of the procession from the Father and in the form that is proper to the Son as Son, Word, and Image. You have heard Father Dill Emery explain this connection. The differentiation which the former day, the morphe to Teu from Philippians 2, uh, introduces is specific to the Son. And it, it explains why only the Son and not the Father and the Spirit become incarnate. Now, what is important for me in this connection is the very specific, specificity um, with which Thomas talks about um, Kenos's language here. Because it means that the Son, in the form of the Son, has to be considered here. And the form of the Son is the very specific way in which the Son then is as Son, Word, and Image. Now let's turn quickly to Martin Luther. Christ's self-emptying and God's Trinitarian self-giving. Martin Luther has at various times offered interpretations of the passage in Philippians, especially in his sermons. As for Thomas Aquinas, the emphasis is on the ethical and Christological aspect, but both are comprehended in a soteriological framework. Luther therefore consistently contrasts the humility of Christ in the incarnation taking the form of a servant with a self-elevation of the sinner assuming the form of God. The ethical exhortation that Christians should serve their neighbors is rooted in a real transposition. Christ takes our place and we become thereby partakers of his place, participating in his filial relation to God the Father and are thereby enabled to serve our neighbor. Whereas this is for us a transformative ontological change, this is not the case for Christ, who takes our place as the Son of the Father in full, unrestricted possession of the divine essence. Now, if this is really the model, the model of changing places, I think this indicates a problem with these sociological implications here. Um, you know that the models and metaphors of sociology have for a long time been discussed with reference to Gustav Aulin's Christus Victor from 1930, who distinguished the classical model, the Western Anselmian model, and the modern model for which he didn't have, rightly, much time. And he used these models in order to interpret the grammar of the different um, sociological metaphors and images that we have. In my view, Aulin's um, distinction between these three types is inaccurate. One that, at least at the moment, would offer a little more clarity is to understand the sociological metaphors according to a grammar of transformation or transmutation which you find, for example, also in Aquinas, as transaction, which characterizes some of the patristic models, but certainly the one of penal substitution 
in modern reform theology and of transposition or translocation, Christ taking our place, which is, I think, the model that Martin Luther uses here and very often explains in um, a form which also takes up the bridal mysticism um, of the late medieval times. So Christ taking our place, the translocation, might be the hidden logic behind taking the form of a servant and being in the morphe of God. Luther explains, seventh, that by distinguishing and relating essence and form in his exegesis of Philippians 2, being in the form of a servant does not denote the essence, but the performance, the attitude, the demeanor. Gebärde is the German word that is used here. And Luther goes through all permutations. There can be essence without performance. There can be performance without essence, and essence together with performance. There is divine essence, even where we seem to experience the wrath of God. But there, we do not experience that God seems to act in relation to us according to God's nature. There is performance without essence, as when we assume a kind of semi-divine status and want to be like God. When we give in to the eritus sicudeus, then we might behave like gods, but our essence is still our sinful created humanity. And there can be essence together with performance. Christ was in the form of God. Essence corresponds to performance. In the incarnation, Christ took the form of a servant Servant form does not correspond to essence, but is nevertheless the expression of the essence. And this is contrasted to the sinful human attempt to usurp the performance or attitude of God, but not having the essence of God. Eighth thesis. Christ, who is God and remains God, takes the form of a servant and serves us by the critical destruction of our attempt to be like God and by revealing the heart of God the Father to us. Luther writes, here St. Paul opens up heaven with a word and makes room for us to see the abundance of the divine majesty and to gaze on the inexpressibly gracious will and love of the Father's heart towards us so that we would feel that God from eternity has been pleased with what Christ the glorious person would do and now has done for us. So here the humiliation is interpreted as an expression of the divine majesty, as an expression of the divine plenitude. It is the expression of the fullness of God and not of a self-emptying of God. Because in the fullness of God, God cannot really strive to be more than God, greater than God. The most moving and I think theologically fruitful interpretation of that is Martin Luther's interpretation of the Magnificat, where it says, God can only look down. He can't look up. Above God, there is nobody. He can't look sideways. There's also nobody. He can only look down. It's the essence of his divine majesty 
to relate to us in humanity. So that kenosis is here a form of the exercise and a form of the plenitude of the divine majesty. Luther interprets the kenosis as a form of divine self-giving for our salvation. The self-giving does not involve a restriction or surrender on the part of God's essence, but a modulation of his giving to our need. The inner Trinitarian foundation of this self-giving is the understanding of God as an eternal conversation, which in the incarnation of the Son and through the Spirit is opened up for us. Now you may know that Luther has this image of God as being involved in an eternal divine conversation, where the Son speak, uh, the Father speaks the word, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the one who listens to this conversation all the time and communicates it to us. In most of the literature, you will find that this is not taken metaphysically seriously, but it's just seen as a metaphor. I think that is a mistake. Um, we take begetting metaphysically seriously as a description of the procession, and we should take also conversation seriously, as did most of the tradition. In Anselm, you will find that the locutio of the word is both within God and towards the world, but is certainly an element of the divine essence. There's, in fact, a very long tradition of that. Now, what concentrating on that particular conceptual model with ontological weight could help us with is to deal with the divorce of being and meaning which has characterized most of modern um, philosophy. And I think most of the world in which we live in, where something exists, but the meaning of whatever exists is something that we decide upon by our form of forming synthetic um, judgments. For Luther, even the act of creation is an expression of the divine conversation, because every one of us is a word of God. We are all part of God's vocabulary, he says in the Genesis lectures, subject to the rules of divine grammar. How would that change our view of the world if we would understand everything that exists already invested with divine meaning right from the start? So that's something to be said for using this particular image also of the Trinity. Now, very briefly, suggestions for further conversations. The strange persistence of canoticism points to unresolved problems in the metaphysical frameworks within which we seek to give appropriate expression to the Christian gospel. The language of the self-emptying of Jesus Christ in Philippians 2 raises a challenge to our understanding of the perfections of God and of our understanding of history most poignantly expressed in Lessing's dictum that accidental truths of history can never become the proof of eternal truths of reason. What is wrong theologically with this statement is that it considers that there could be eternal truths of reason which are independent of God's eternal Trinitarian being, and it considers that there could be accidental truths of his history which are independent of the fact of the incarnation. 
both Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther challenged the metaphysical dualism presupposed in Lessing's view. They propose revisions to the inherited conceptual frames based on the inside of the Christian gospel. In Aquinas, the regulative principle of divine simplicity, because God is beyond any genus as the principle of all genera, is used to show that the infinite can assume every finite form. In Martin Luther, the opposition between the eternal and the temporal is bridged by the divine self-disclosure, which neither comprises the eternal nor devalues the temporal. Both Thomas Aquinas and Luther resist the temptation to transfer the historical into the eternal divine essence directly. Nor do they postulate a self-restriction or relativization of the eternal God in the incarnation. The divine attributes must be expressed through the self-manifestation of God in the incarnation and so overcome the temptation to define God by the contrast of the negation of attributes predicated of the created order. That can ever only be a preliminary exercise. The economic trinity is the self-manifestation of the immanent trinity in the proper in the form proper to each person. In Christ, the created order is assumed by God or is sanctified as the means, the performance of divine self-communication. Martin Luther's theology is often most poignantly expressed in his hymns. And so let me end with two quotations, one from his Christmas hymn, um, where he said, whom all the world could not enwrap, lieth here in Mary's lap. A little child, he, um, he, ha he now is grown, who everything upholds alone. So the very majesty of God consists in the fact that nothing is so great that God would not be greater. And nothing is so small that God would not be smaller. Nothing is so long that God not, would not be longer, but nothing is so short that God would not be shorter. Nothing is so high that God would not be higher. And, important for Kenneth's, nothing is so low that God would not be lower. In view of this understanding of the divine pleurosis, of the plenitude of the divine majesty, do we need a Kenotic theology? No or only as the modulation of the divine pluralism, which expresses the all-encompassing fullness of God's Trinitarian self-giving. Thank you for your patience. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Scholl, for your excellent presentation. Um, I'm just going to ask about something you mentioned in the first part of your talk. You said that uh, it is here that a reinterpretation or a revision of the classical doctrine of divine attributes is called for. Um, I was just, and then I, I believe you went on to express how it would be important to examine these in light of the doctrine of the Trinity in relation to persons. Um, I think that's a very uh, beautiful 
uh, idea, and I was just wondering uh, what what would that look like in light of the fact of still retaining, obviously, the necessity of uh, the one God, <laughs> that it is three gods, or excuse me, three persons in one God. Um, that's a mistake I don't excuse. <laughs> Thank you. And that's a very important question. Um, you see, what I'm trying to feel and think my way towards is, um, is it not that we get into these conundrums with canonic theology because we have a kind of not fully baptized theology of the divine attributes, but defining them mainly in contrast to the created order, so that divine simplicity is understood as that which the multiplicity of the world is not. Now, for me, that's an accurate understanding of what Muslim theologians mean by Taweet. I think um, Christian theologians are challenged to show that their notion of simplicity is different and is not developed in contrast to the multiplicity of the world, but is developed in the relationship of the three Trinitarian persons. And the same, I think, goes for defining eternity. Have we understood eternity sufficiently if we only see it negatively? Wouldn't we also have to see it as the fullness of eternity in which God as the ground of all time can be present in all time and will be the perfecting cause of all time? These further developments are for me theologically called for. And the canonic problem is the contrast of the fact of the incarnation with unbaptized divine attributes, and there you get the problem. And I think this is not a new thing, but in this kind of revision of received metaphysics, Thomas Aquinas was already involved, given that the received metaphysics of his day was probably the one of Ibn Sina, defined in a paradigm that um, was cultivated in Baghdad. And one has to understand this tremendous theological creativity as the refashioning of metaphysics according to the truth of the gospel. And that's also something I think where Martin Luther was engaged in. Unfortunately, we don't have such a beautiful systematic expression of that, but um, um, writings of different sorts, and also I think a development that never came to its full conclusion. But with regard to Kenesis, I think they basically go along the same lines. Thank you. Um, I like the idea of fullness, and I would uh, like to mention another Dominican thinker that goes in with uh, Luther as well, which is Yep. And it was he emphasized uh, the very essence of God as infinitely beyond Trinity's death. And that has two advantages in terms of canonesis. First, God gives nothing to himself, not even his being. So the being of the world is the being of God because he's completely different. And secondly, uh, also the properties of the persons. Um, first, of course, as a mystic, he would say, we need to be the son of God, and we are the son of God, sing the son. And uh, in the Trinity, it means for Eckhart that um, the son is also the father of his father because the essence is Right. Um, thank you very much. Um, Meister Eckhart has a very prominent place of my list of heretics I love. 
But there is real heresy here. And that is that one has to maintain that there is only one hypostatic union. And only because of the hypostatic union with Christ, we can have in him and through the spirit a filial relationship to God. And this is something that cannot be developed into a universal um, general metaphysical principle, as e Eckhart sometimes does it. Also, he has, instead of the locutio at the being of God, only the thought and the dialogical element, which is so strong in the tradition, I think is a little weaker there. Um, but I'm sure that um, I will not come to a so to say, conclusive response to Eckhart during my lifetime. And there are conversations in heaven one can look forward to.